Morrison fumbles at RoboDebt Royal Commission, Cookers turn to terrorism, Pampas workers strike for decent work, and good news for renewables. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your host flying solo today for The Week on Wednesday. My name is Ben Davison. Uh, my lovely partner, the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, never been a more important time to read that book, in my humble opinion. Uh, the great and the glorious Van Batam is currently doing a development for the Sydney Theatre Company uh, for a play that hopefully will be staged in the not-too-distant future. If you are in Sydney this Friday, you can get along and see a public reading of her new play. Uh, you can check online for details, check out Van Batam's Facebook page for the links uh, or the Sydney Theatre Company uh, page for links there as well. But fear not, Van and I will be reunited this weekend when we will be taking a short break over Christmas before returning bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for another huge year with the week on Wednesday in 2023, including a four-show appearance at the Adelaide Fringe Festival. That's right, the Melbourne Fringe Festival appearance was so popular and so successful, Adelaide have asked us to come to their festival as well. We will be there, we will do four shows the last week of February and the first three weeks of March. Check out the Adelaide Fringe webpage and our online links for more details there. But of course, there has been a lot going on. And while 2022 has been a massive year, and at some point we will do a full review of the year when Van and I can sit down and do that together, I do want to focus on some of the topical stories that are happening right now. Because of course, at the moment, the former Prime Minister, former Treasurer, former Finance Minister, former Minister for Social Services, former Minister for Resources, uh, and I'm sure many other things that I simply can't remember that he made himself Minister for, Scott Morrison, is fronting the Robo-Debt Royal Commission. Now, we know that the Robo-Debt scandal was an illegal program. We know that it impacted the lives of tens of thousands of innocent Australians, and that in some cases, it contributed to their deaths. Over a billion dollars has been paid in settlements to those Australians impacted by this illegal program. And I have to say, the RoboDebt Royal Commission makes for pretty grim listening. It appears as though departmental secretaries, deputy secretaries, bureaucrats at all levels were giving government the advice that they thought government wanted. There was a blatant disregard for the impact policies would have on people. But perhaps most disturbingly of all is Morrison's own testimony today. At the time of this recording, they had broken for lunch. But 
already a clear picture has emerged of a man who does not wish to answer the questions he's being asked, who seems to fumble when it suits him, yet no verbatim sections of the act when having that knowledge helps him get out of a tight spot. In fact, the commissioner asked him if he was referring to the act as he made reference to certain sections of it during his testimony. He has doubled down on the welfare cop position. He has suggested quite outrageously that the changes to Social Security under his watch were needed to fund the NDIS. He has said that the department changed their position on the need for legal changes and that his view was there was no requirement to change the law to do robo-debt and that, in fact, his decision to pursue welfare compliance measures, including robo-debt, was not authorisation, that he had signed a document only agreeing on the development of a package of activity, not on the implementation of it. Clearly, this was not the view of the department because they went forward and implemented it. Morrison's behaviour and demeanour throughout this hearing has been quite remarkable. At one point, the Royal Commissioner, Catherine Holmes, has said, and I quote, Mr. Morrison, can I get you to stick to answering the question a bit more? I do understand that you come from a background where rhetoric is important, but it is necessary to listen to the question and just answer it without extra detail. Unnecessary detail, if you can. At one point, she asked him whether or not he was listening, listening at all, to which he responded, absolutely. He... He has no remorse whatsoever for robo-debt. He fundamentally believes that what he did was right. And once again, we are treated to, subjected to, faced with the prospect of Scott Morrison, former Prime Minister, who has no regrets, no regrets whatsoever. He continually comes back to this idea that a billion dollars was being unlawfully paid out to people in Australia. Of course, even the commissioner has suggested that as few as 20,000 people may have been overpaid and that, in fact, overpayment in itself did not necessarily mean there was a debt owing and certainly did not necessarily mean that there had been a fraud committed. Morrison seemed entirely unable to grasp this concept. He remains entrenched in his view that what he was doing and what his government did was hunt down people who got money they weren't entitled to, and that he was using powers that had existed for some time. This is despite the fact that, again, the commissioner pointed out to him that the legislation 
only allowed the department to go back 13 weeks. And if he is so familiar with the legislation that he's able to recite certain sections of it, how is it that he was unable to recognise that in order to go back years into people's records, that they would need some form of legal change. Morrison, again, has no answer to that. Instead, he pivots to and blames the department. It is just so frustrating to listen to this man blame the department, try and suggest that what he was doing was somehow or another in the interests of another group of Australians, that is, Australians who rely on the NDIS. RoboDebt has nothing to do with the NDIS. There is no connection between monies recovered from Australians by the RoboDebt system and the establishment or ongoing delivery of the NDIS. This is simply a furphy that Morrison has tried to throw into the mix in order to distract from the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation is that the Morrison government acted unlawfully in its pursuit of innocent Australians over money which they did not owe the Commonwealth, but which the Commonwealth pursued with a level of vigour which, quite frankly, it does not demonstrate when pursuing the likes of Jerry Harvey for overpayments of things like JobKeeper. It is really frustrating. It is beyond contemptible to have Scott Morrison sit in the dock. In fact, even the commissioner seems frustrated with Scott Morrison's performance. At one point, he looked stunned as he was pulled up for breaking the provisions on parliamentary privilege in order to enter his own documents that he had taken from Parliament into evidence. The man simply is beyond redemption. His prime ministership is forever tainted by his own behaviour, by his own lack of compassion, of remorse. People died because of this program. And he claims that it is no different to the programs implemented in 1989. I mean, clearly, Blind Freddy can see that robo-debt was different, that robo-debt was another step beyond what was already in place and that it was a step too far. Scott Morrison can't see it. Scott Morrison doesn't believe it. Scott Morrison continues to defend Scott Morrison at the expense of all other Australians. The Royal Commission into RoboDebt will continue. It's been amazing to see how some public servants did try and say this would be an unlawful program, did try and pull this up, and of course were ostracised and in some cases lost their jobs.
Bill Shorten, the Minister for Government Services, has on social media been making this point that those public servants actually represent the best of public service, while some politicised careerists allowed this to occur and facilitated what was an awful ideological position that Morrison and his ministers imposed upon the Australian people. And that is the ideology that somehow or another, if you are an Australian who requires support, you are more suspicious than any other. That your need for support somehow or another makes you less than other Australians. That your need for support makes you the target of your own government. This, of course, is a terrible neoliberal ideology and one which has to be fully broken down, disassembled, cremated and buried because it victimises those who most need help. And the reality is that the vast majority of Australians who require income support want to work. They might need additional assistance. They might need additional accommodations to facilitate that. But the reality is they want to participate in our society. And frankly, attacking them, holding them out as some kind of boogeyman, blaming them for the failures of economic management that the Liberal government was embroiled in at the time is lazy politics and is the politics of division. Even today, as Morrison tried to pivot a question that had nothing to do with the NDIS into a division, he tried to pivot into suggesting that what he was doing was taking money from the undeserving poor and giving it to Australians on the NDIS. That's simply not true. It's the politics of division, it's the politics of hate, and it's designed to turn us one against the other. And whoever tries that, whether they be Scott Morrison, whether they be people on social media, whether they be people on Sky News, we as working people need to reject that idea. Because the reality is when we support each other to get back on our feet, when we help people into work, good, steady, secure work, when we make sure that people are paid properly, then we have a better society for all. And for those who can't work, for those for whatever reason, whatever their circumstance, are prevented from being able to access employment, we need to make sure they are supported. Ideally, people would only require income support for a short period of time. But as we all know, we don't live in an ideal world. And some people will need support for a much longer period. They should not be held out 
as some kind of evildoer, as though they are trying to get something to which they are not entitled or somehow have not earned. Every citizen of this country deserves the right to live a peaceful life with dignity and respect, and having income security is an important part of that equation. I want to talk now about what happened in Queensland this week. I mentioned at the start of the show Van's book, QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, and I'm very deliberately mentioning it because what happened in Queensland this week is the culmination of cooker ideology, and that is domestic terrorism. We've seen it in other countries. We saw it in America with the storming of the Capitol building. We saw it recently in Germany, where cookers attempted to install a new monarchy. And now in Queensland, we've seen it in the form of the ambushing, the murder, and quite frankly, the brutal execution of members of the Queensland Police Force. Constables Matthew Arnold and Rachel McCrow were murdered, along with Queensland resident Alan Dare, during a terrorism incident at a farmhouse. I'll say the names of the three cookers who were involved in the terrorist incident because it's important we understand who they are. Nathaniel Train, Gareth Train and Stacey Train shot at police. One of them then approached Constables Arnold and McCrow while they were injured on the ground and fired into them from near point-blank range. Two other constables, Kirk and Broff, were also wounded. The three terrorists were slayed following the arrival of a heavily armed response unit and several hours of conflict. There's lots of articles about what happened, and I'm not going to go into the details or the blow-by-blow or the minute-by-minute. You can read all of that online. There's lots of discussion about it. What I want to talk about is how this came to be, because quite frankly, that in some ways is more important. Because if we understand how this has come about, we stand some chance of stopping it from happening again. But if we allow people to spin away from why this has occurred and blame it on the three terrorists and their individual quirks, then quite frankly, we run the risk of these things happening again and possibly again. So why did three terrorists from Australia living in Queensland, who had worked in education, ambush and murder police 
and then have a gun battle with more police and set fire to scrubland in order to try and burn a police officer alive. Why did they do that? Why did they then murder their neighbour who came to investigate the fire by shooting him in the back? Well, I'm not going to pretend to know the inner workings of these three individuals' minds, but what I will say is that two of them, the Train brothers, expressed a number of conspiratorial theories online. One said, our country is at a point where even cowards are now dangerous because they are unpredictable in groups. Turn your back and you may find yourself out cold on the floor with law enforcement dancing on your head. That's a direct quote. And some Murdoch media outlets end the quote there. The Australian continues the quote to say, we are seeing this in Victoria. This was one of the Train brothers who said this. Interestingly enough, given the three cowards gunned down three police officers without warning, that they are picking up talking points about Victoria and police acting in an anti-democratic fashion talking points that cookers have repeated again and again, talking points which have appeared on Murdoch media again and again. One of the Train brothers, a former school principal, believes the New South Wales State Government was involved in helping students cheat on exams. He'd been con- in contact with New South Wales One Nation leader Mark Latham, who described this particular Train brother as someone who was bitter and someone who he'd spoken on the phone with three or four times, although Mr. Latham claims he's never met him in person. That same brother was reported as missing on the 4th of December after he stopped answering his phone in October, having left his wife in New South Wales and gone north. Police were looking for the brother at the home of of the other brother in Queensland. Now, the other brother had described Port Arthur as a false flag operation, again, parroting the lines of QAnon conspiracy cultists, saying that the Port Arthur false flag operation was designed to disarm Australians and allow Australia to become a police state. These terrorists... These terrorists shot at four police officers and then summarily executed two of them while they were lying wounded on the ground. They sprayed bullets at a police officer's car as he tried to flee to safety and set fire to scrubland to try and flush out another police officer who had tried to flee to the safety of the bush. Now, this particular part of Queensland is an area that has seen an influx of cookers, part of where the train 
trio were living is sometimes referred to as the blocks, where blocks of land are relatively affordable and people can go and live off-grid. The trained trio of terrorists had described fortifying their block and making it off-grid, that they were building, quote-unquote, an ark. Now, people have all sorts of interesting beliefs. And I myself enjoy the show Doomsday Preppers. I have no issue with people wanting to be prepared. The issue here is that these three people were not trying to be prepared for a natural disaster or some kind of power outage. They were preparing for an armed conflict with the democratically elected governments within the Commonwealth of Australia. And we should be very, very clear about this, that there are people in that community who are flying flags aligned to the QAnon cult, holding meetings of people who've refused vaccinations, who come and tell them about quote-unquote, their rights, and who continue to believe that the democratically elected state and Commonwealth governments of Australia are somehow or another illegitimate and that they are acting against the interests of the people. Now, on this show, on the week on Wednesday, we have talked many times about government policy we disagree with about government actions we disagree with. And we always encourage people to get involved in politics. But what the trio, the trained trio of terrorists have done is gotten involved with conspiracy cults and conducted a terrorist activity. We shouldn't try and sugarcoat this. But already we're seeing the Murdoch media, the same Murdoch media that day after day attacked the Andrews Labor government, that day after day attacks the Palaszczuk Labor government, that day after day attacks the Albanese Labor government, that has attacked every single effort that was made to protect Australians from COVID, that has allowed that has allowed Sky News commentators to say the most abhorrent and conspiratorial things on television, in the papers, these media outlets are now spinning this terrorist attack, saying that the trio of trained terrorists somehow were sparked by NAPLAN cheating, that they were in some kind of ice-induced mania, that it had something to do with a love triangle between the two brothers and the wife. All of this ignores the reality on the ground. And the reality is that the Train brothers were actively consuming 
vast quantities of anti-government misinformation. They were regurgitating Murdoch media talking points about Victoria being a dictatorship and anti-democratic. They wrote openly, using their own names, about how the police were part of anti-democratic conspiracies. They were radicalised individuals who had consumed vast quantities of misinformation, were actively participating in the spreading of misinformation and were sharing it with other people who, like them, were afraid, like them, had suffered some form of class trauma or social dislocation. Two of these people were educators and held executive positions. These are not somehow or another uneducated people, and we need to break away from the misinformation about who is in these terrorist conspiracy cults. Because all too often, somehow or another, this idea that these are working-class people who have been pushed too far by cheating or by drugs or by some kind of love triangle is peddled when the reality is these are white-collar professionals with enough money to buy a block of land, to fortify a home, to arm themselves to the point where they're able to hold off heavily armed police for hours, who are intelligent enough to lay a trap and ambush four police officers and murder two of them. This is not, this is not a situation that just happens from time to time. This is the outcome of misinformation. This is the outcome of peddling fear. This is the outcome of trying to politicise people who are afraid of profiting from that fear. We've seen it in America. We've seen it in Germany. And now, sadly, we see it here in Australia. In Queensland, three hours west of Brisbane, the train trio of terrorists believed that the police could at any moment come and seize them unlawfully, just like happens in Victoria. That was their belief. Now, that doesn't come from nowhere. That doesn't come from thinking that students are cheating on their exams. It doesn't come from taking too many drugs, and it certainly doesn't come from a love triangle. It comes from months and months of disinformation about the role of government. It comes from months and months of trying to make people angry and to mobilise that anger for political or and or financial gain. And eventually, what happens is that the propagandists lose control and the cult or members of it become violent. We've seen threats against 
the Premier in Victoria. We've seen threats against the Chief Minister in the Northern Territory. And now we've seen the murder of police in Queensland. These are people, these three people, these three terrorists, described themselves as conservative. They described themselves as patriots. Yet they murdered, in cold blood, two police officers and engaged in a gun battle with many more. We cannot allow... We cannot allow private corporate media to continue to peddle misinformation, whether it's for political purposes or for profit or for some other reason, because what it is doing to our communities is creating these wells of hate these pools of conspiracy and these gangs of terrorists. And sadly, people's lives have been snuffed out. Those police officers were all under the age of 30. The neighbour leaves behind a wife and family who don't understand how it is that their husband, Mr. Dare, has been snatched away from them. He literally went to investigate a fire on a neighbour's property and was shot in the back. Shot in the back by people who called themselves patriots. Any media outlet, any media outlet, that peddles these misinformation messages that is held in high esteem by these cultists, by these terrorists, needs to take a good hard look at what it's doing to our society. Because a man who went to help a neighbour who he thought was in trouble with a fire, something every Australian can understand, was murdered by a group of people who believed that Victoria is a police state and that the police would come and take them away without cause at any given moment. That somehow or another, they had come to the conclusion that Murdering people was the right course of action in the defence of democracy. And I can tell you, as you already know, murder does not defend democracy. Murder brings about tyranny. You have to vote. You have to convince. You have to debate and engage. You have to accept when you lose That's how you defend democracy. The train trio of terrorists were not patriots. They were terrorists. They were not defending democracy. They were offending democracy. And the sooner media outlets 
stop talking about how their mental health or drug use or personal love lives were involved or not involved in what happened and acknowledge that these three individuals at the very extreme end of a very loud and dangerous cult movement. Until that happens, we have to remain vigilant. And of course, my thoughts go to the families of the victims of these terrorist attacks. It's unthinkable, truly unthinkable. Four police officers looking for a missing person, one of whom was involved in the attack on them. Some suggest it was in fact a false flag of its own designed to lure those officers into that position where they could be more easily murdered. It seems almost unbelievable, yet that's exactly what has happened. I want to change gears a little bit because while what happened in Queensland is a demonstration of anti-democratic and, in fact, terrorist activity, there are still many, many pro-democracy movements, pro-democracy activities happening all around Australia. And we've often talked on the week on Wednesday about how important it is to join your union. Over the last week or so, we've talked about the strike at Pampas. Pampas, of course, make pastry. They also make bread products, including uh, wrap products for Zambrero. Now, the workers at Pampas have been on strike for about four weeks, and There has been a lot of solidarity action and a lot of support for those workers with people not shopping at Zambrero, which claims to be an ethical company, but of course is sourcing product from Pampas. I had the very great privilege to talk to Annabelle, who has worked at Pampas for 33 years. This is only the second time she's had to go on strike. The first time was some 20 years ago. Annabelle is a lovely person. We had an excellent conversation about why they've gone on strike and how important being in the union is. And I have to say, if you're feeling alone or unsure, if you want good information based on solid facts, join your union. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. Because talking to Annabelle, it became very apparent to me how the solidarity of Annabelle and her co-workers gives her strength, gives her a sense of purpose and of security, even while they're on strike, even while they don't have that income coming in. Those workers at Pampas have taken strike action after EBA negotiations broke down. Pampas was not offering a pay rise. They were offering a real pay cut. 
But even more than that, the workers wanted a better deal for casuals at the factory. And when I say casuals, I mean workers who'd been there, according to Annabelle, for up to 20 years and who'd never been offered permanent work. These are workers who are not just casual on the books of Pampas, but could come from any one of three agencies. In discussions with Annabelle, she told me that in any given day, up to half the workforce at Pampas might be a casual and might be from an agency. You could have a situation where four workers doing roughly the same work, roughly the same quality of work with roughly the same skills required, were all being paid different rates of pay because they are employed under different arrangements. What the Pampas workers wanted was security in their workplace agreement to reduce the use of agency labour and to give casuals better rights. Because, as Annabelle put it, you can't buy a home if you're casual. People have worked in that factory for 20 years and cannot get a home loan because they are casual. There's also the reality that many of the workers are on contracts, 12-month contracts that get renewed or don't get renewed, often without any rhyme or reason. During the course of this action, Annabelle told me that some workers whose contracts were due for renewal had only been renewed for six months, and instead of being renewed full-time, they were being renewed part-time. This is a company that is committed to having an insecure, unstable workforce. And it sounds like a strange thing to say when you consider Annabelle's been there for 33 years and that some of those casuals have been there for 20. But again, if you're casual, even if you've been there for 20 years, You don't have access to sick leave. You don't have access to long service leave. You don't have access to annual leave. In fact, many of your rights simply don't exist. I asked Annabelle what they wanted to achieve by going on strike. And she said that they wanted to fix these problems. They wanted people to know what was going on behind closed doors, that Pampas portrays itself as this company that supplies to Zambrero and to supermarkets with puff pastry and all these products that people like, but that behind closed doors, the reality was very different. And that maybe, just maybe by taking strike action, their voice would be heard. This strike is getting a lot of support from the community from the community around the factory, from the community more broadly in Victoria, but also from the union movement right across Australia. You can support the workers at Pampas by going to scambrero.com and making a contribution to their strike fund. Obviously, Christmas is coming up, and the company knows that Christmas is a time when people need money. 
and they are applying pressure to try and break the strike. Annabelle told me the strike will go on as long as it needs to, that the members are sticking together, that the union, right across the union, not just the members at Pampas, but members of the union all over the state have been very supportive. And that all workers need to be members of their union. That it means they can hold their heads up high, that they stick together, that they make sure their rights are respected. So again, I'd say go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, or if you go to the scambrero.com site, you can also join United Workers Union there if you're in a United Workers Union coverage industry. You know, one of the things that really struck me talking to Annabelle was how proud she was of the fact that the workers were sticking together, that even workers who had permanency saw the importance of standing with the casuals, of standing with the workers who are currently being outsourced to agencies. Because they know that if they don't do that, their jobs could be next. And it's through solidarity that everyone's job is made more secure, that everyone's pay is decent and fair. It contrasts so well against... Morrison's attempt to pit the unemployed against the disabled and contrasts so well against the paranoia and fear that drove the terrorists in Queensland. It was a real privilege to talk to Annabelle, who has just stood firm, absolutely rock firm, against the attempts to break the strike. And, of course, my solidarity, hopefully your solidarity, goes to Annabelle and all the workers at Pampas in their struggle for secure jobs and better pay. And hopefully we will see them win a better deal in 2023, if not before. Who knows? Maybe, maybe the ghost of Christmas past present or future, will visit the executives at Pampas and they'll see the light before Christmas and give those workers the job security they so clearly have earned and deserve. Now, I want to finish this episode with some good news. We've had some pretty heavy stories this week, but the good news is there is a $10 billion renewable energy capacity investment scheme that has been announced by Chris Bowen and the Commonwealth Labor government after discussions with the states. On Sunday, you might recall, I talked about the uh, energy price cap arrangements. Well, just before that deal was done, Chris Bowen managed to secure agreement with the states to underwrite new wind and solar farms, along with battery storage to help stabilise our power grid. As those coal-fired generators come offline, we know they're coming offline, and it seems like every six months the timeline gets shorter on those coal-fired power stations. This investment scheme will 
build the capacity to ensure we have reliable, affordable, low-cost energy. The government will be holding tenders. Now, this process is pretty interesting. I think it's pretty interesting. If you're a bit of a policy nerd like me, you might find it interesting too. If not, bear with me a moment, because ultimately, I think you'll like the end point. The government's going to hold tenders. The tenders will agree a floor and ceiling on revenue from these wind solar farms. And if the revenue goes below the floor, then government will step in and top up the revenue, which means investors have some form of security. You're not going to have to build a wind farm because the government asks you to and then lose money on it because the government abandons you. If you build a wind farm that the government wants uh, and for some reason or another uh, there isn't the demand for the electricity, the government will step in and top you up. Now, the flip side of the coin, and this is where I think it's really interesting, interesting, is that if the revenue goes above the ceiling, then the government will retain a share of the profits. This is really, really interesting because it means that this $10 billion renewable energy capacity investment scheme really is an investment scheme. It means the Commonwealth is investing in these energy assets. And if these energy assets do make profits, like we're seeing some energy assets make outlandish profits at the moment, going forward, some of that profit would go back to the Commonwealth, which could then be used to reduce power bills, help fund government programs, all the things that governments do that are good for society. Such an interesting an important step in giving some control and some ownership of our power assets back to the people. So we look forward to those tenders going out and we look forward to seeing some excellent projects being built. Wind farms, offshore wind farms, solar farms, battery storage. Really, it's going to be a fantastic fantastic time for renewable energy in this country, thanks to that scheme and many other policy initiatives as well. Look, the week on Wednesday in 2022, for the first time, trialed having a supporter page, buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. And I have to say, we've been blown away by the level of support people have been willing to provide. The podcast is always free to download and always free to listen to, but the support of our listeners has allowed us to grow our audience and keep growing our audience. In 2022, our audience will be more than twice the size of the audience we had in 2021. We've, of course, done live broadcasts of both the federal election and the Victorian state election. We've done a live fringe show in Melbourne, and next year we'll do four live fringe shows at the Adelaide Fringe. We've tried to create additional content and share that with you. And of course, we email all of our supporters every week, not just with links to the podcast, but also additional interesting articles and tweets where you can find more information about these topics. 
And so it's really, I just want to congratulate our cadre, our Extend the Reach, and our Buck a Week supporters and our one-off supporters who've chipped in all, all throughout the year to grow that audience, to help us get the message out, to help people learn about politics, unionism, what's going on, and to join their union. The number of stories people have sent us where they have either joined their union or through getting people to listen to the week on Wednesday, encouraged others to join their union, has really made this a fantastic, fantastic project for us in what has been, as regular listeners will know, a fairly difficult year for us personally. So, as always, we want to run through very quickly our cadre. Our cadre provide $20, uh, $20 a month, and they are Karina Bailey, at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Someone, Shane Horsfield, uh, Kristen Cicluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona, at Evergreen Vies, Giota, at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, No Relation, Richard Sands, I Am Not On Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingle, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers at Carrie Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Narissa Simon at Cadigal, Lauren Ash and Banjo, Matthew Hadley at Narungaman, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Alan Rollins, Louise Watson slash Red, White and Blue Lou. And then our Extend the Reach supporters who put in $10 a month, Stuart Munn, Marky Mark, at Vic M. Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Caridale 68, Frank Nayus, Erica Pazuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Carrie Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Cameron, Tri-Dragon, Damien Marley, Daniel, at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, at Ange Fennell, Anna, Anna Uran, at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kristen Black, Melanie Dinning, Jody A, not on Twitter, Karen, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at K Not, Love Your Work, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nadita Hannam, Moira Lurie's Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, at Gail Vest, Greg Martin, Trina, uh, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elaine and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizard Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward at The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee and Rodney Slap. And of course, our Buck a Week supporters who chip in as well. Every dollar goes back into the show. We've talked about trying to raise enough money to pay a producer to help out. We hope, we hope we're able to do that at some point in 2023. Now, don't forget, you can catch Van's latest reading of her latest play with the Sydney Theatre Company this Friday. Uh, check it out at the Sydney Theatre Company website. Uh, you can join your union online, australianunions.org.au slash wow. You can become a supporter like all those great people who I've just read out and get the email, get the content at buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. And this will be our final episode until Van and I do a final wrap-up on probably New Year's Day of 2022. We are going to take a short couple-of-week break just to regroup after what has been such a massive, massive year. 
want to congratulate all of you on changing a federal government, retaining Labor state governments, changing a, Labor, changing a government in South Australia to Labor, and of course, joining your union and helping win the Secure Jobs Better Pay legislation through the Parliament. Such a huge, huge year for all of our listeners. Such a huge year for us. Thank you so much for your support. We hope you'll still still listen to us in 2023. You'll like, share, comment. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple if you've enjoyed this episode. And until I talk to you again, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.